Hi, everybody. Carla here. Thanks for coming back for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's continue with E. Lockhart's We Were Liars, Part 3, Summer 17. In Woods Hole, the port town, Mummy and I let the Goldens out of the car and drag our bags down to where Aunt Carrie is standing on the dock. Carrie gives Mummy a long hug before she helps us load our bags and the dogs into the big motorboat. You're more beautiful than ever, she says, and thank God you're here. Oh, quiet, says Mummy. I know you've been sick, Carrie says to me. She is the tallest of my aunts and the eldest Sinclair daughter. Her sweater is long and cashmere. The lines on the sides of her mouth are deep. She's wearing some ancient jade jewelry that belonged to Gran. Nothing is wrong with me that a Percocet and a, and a few slugs of vodka can't cure, I say. Carrie laughs, but Mummy leans in and says, She's not taking Percocet. She's taking a non-addictive medicine the doctor prescribes. It isn't true. The non-addictive medicines didn't work. She looks too thin says Carrie. It's all the vodka, I say. It fills me up. She can't eat that much when she's hurting, says Mummy. The pain makes her nauseated. Best made that blueberry pie you like, Aunt Carrie tells me. She gives Mummy another hug. You guys are all so huggy all of a sudden, I say. You never used to be huggy. Aunt Carrie hugs me too. She smells of expensive lemony perfume. I haven't seen her in a long time. The drive out of the harbor is cold and sparkly. I sit at the back of the boat while Mummy stands next to Aunt Carrie behind the wheel. I trail my hand in the water. It sprays the arm of my duffel coat, soaking the canvas. I will see Gat soon. Gat. My Gat. Who is not my Gat. The houses, the littles, the aunts, the liars. I will hear the sound of seagulls taste the slumps and pies and homemade ice cream. I'll hear the pong of tennis balls, the bark of the goldens, the echo of my breath and a snorkel. We'll make bonfires that will smell of ashes. Will I still be at home? Before long, Beechwood is ahead of us, the familiar outline looming. The first house I see is Windermere with its multitude of peaked roofs. The room on the far right is Mummy's. There are her pale blue curtains. My own window looks to the inside of the island. Carrie steers the boat around the tip, and I can see cuddled down there at the lowest point of the land with its chubby box-like box -like structure. A bitty sand cove, the tiny beach is tucked in at the bottom of a long wooden staircase. The view changes as we circle to the eastern side of the island. I can't see much of Red Gate among the trees, but I glimpse its red trim. Then the big beach accessed by another wooden staircase. Claremont sits at the highest point with water views in three directions. I crane my neck to look for its friendly turret, but it isn't there. The trees that used to shade the big sloping yard, they're gone too. Instead of the Victorian six-bedroom with the wraparound porch and the farmhouse kitchen, instead of the house where Granddad spent every summer since forever, I see a sleek modern building perched on a rocky hill. That's a Japan There's a Japanese garden on one side, bare rock on the other. The house is glass and iron, cold. Carrie cuts the engine down, which makes it easier to talk. 
That's New Claremont, she says. It was just a shell last year. I never imagined he wouldn't have a lawn, says Mummy. Wait till you see the inside. The walls are bare. And when we got here yesterday, he had nothing in the fridge but some apples and a wedge of Havarti. Since when does he even like Havarti? asks Mummy. Havarti isn't even a good cheese. He doesn't know how to shop. Jenny and Lucille, that's the new cook, only do what he tells them to do. He's been eating cheese toast. But I made a huge list and they went to the, to the Edgartown market. We have enough for a few days now. Mummy shivers. It's good we're here. I stare at the new building while the aunts talk. I knew Granddad renovated, of course. He, he and Mummy talked about the new kitchen when he visited a few days ago. The fridge and the extra freezer, the warming drawer and spice racks. I didn't realize he'd torn the house down, that the lawn was gone and the trees, especially the huge old maple with the tire swing beneath it. That tree must have been a hundred years old. A wave surges up, dark blue leaping from the sea like a whale. It arches over me. The muscles of my neck spasm, my throat catches. I fold beneath the weight of it. The blood rushes to my head. I am drowning. It all seems so sad, so unbearably sad for a second to think of the lovely old maple with its swing. We never told the tree how much we loved it. We never gave it a name, never did anything for it. It could have lived so much longer. I am so, so cold. Cadence. Mummy is leaning over me. I reach and clutch her hand. Be normal now, she whispers, right now. What? Because you are. Because you can be. Okay, okay, it, it was just a tree. Just a tree with a tire swing that I loved a lot. Don't cause a scene, whispers Mummy. Breathe and sit up. I do what she asks as soon as I am able, just as I have always done. Aunt Carrie provides distraction, speaking brightly. The new garden is nice when you get used to it, she says. There's a seating area for cocktail hour. Taft and Will are finding special rocks. She turns the boat toward the shore, and I suddenly see my liars waiting, not on the dock, but by the weathered wooden fence that runs along the perimeter path. Marin stands with her feet on the lower half of the barrier, waving joyfully, her hair whipping in the wind. Mirren, she is sugar, she is curiosity and rain. Johnny jumps up and down every now and then doing a cartwheel. Johnny, he is bounce, he is effort and snark. Gat, my gat, once upon a time, my gat, he has come out to see me too. He stands back from the slats of the fence on the rocky hill that now leads to Claremont. He's doing pretend semaphore, waving his arms in ornate patterns as if I'm supposed to understand some kind of secret code. He is contemplation and enthusiasm, ambition and strong coffee. Welcome home, they are saying. Welcome home. The liars don't come to the dock when we pull in, and neither do Aunt Bess and Granddad. Instead, it is only the Littles, Will and Taft, Liberty and Bonnie. The boys, both ten, kick one another and, whistle and wrestle around. Taft runs over and grabs my arm. I pick him up and spin him. He is surprisingly light, like his freckled body is made of bird parts. You feeling better? I ask. We have ice cream in the freezer he yells. Three different kinds. Seriously, Taft, you were a mess on the phone last night. Was not. Were two. Mirren read me a story. Then I went to sleep. No big whoop.
I ruffle his honey hair. It's just a house. Lots of houses seem scary at night, but not in, but in the morning they're friendly again. We're not staying at Cuddle Down anyway, Tav says. We moved to New Claremont with Granddad now. You did? We have to be orderly there and not act like idiots. We took our stuff already, and Will caught three jellyfish at the beach and also a dead crab. Will you come see them? Sure. He has the crab in his pocket, but the jellies are in a bucket of water, says Taft, and runs off. Mummy and I walk across the island to Windermere, a short distance on a wooden walkway. The twins help with our suitcases. Granddad and Aunt Bess are in the kitchen. There are wildflowers and vases on the counter, and Bess scrubs a, cl a clean sink with a Brillo pad while Granddad reads the Martha's, Martha's Vineyard Times. Bess is softer than her sisters and blonder, but still of the same mold. She is wearing white jeans and a navy blue cotton top with diamond jewelry. She takes off rubber gloves and then kisses Mummy and hugs me too long and too hard, like she is trying to hug some deep and secret message. She smells of bleach and wine. Granddad stands up but doesn't cross the room until Bess is done hugging. Hello there, Marin, he says jovially. Grand to see you. He's doing that a lot, Carrie says to me and Mummy, calling people Marin who aren't Marin. I know she's not Marin. Granddad says. The adults talk amongst, amongst themselves, and I am left with the twins. They look awkward in crocs and summer dresses. They must be almost 14 now. They have Mirren's strong legs and blue eyes, but their faces are pinched. Your hair is black, says Bonnie. You look like a dead vampire. Bonnie, Liberty smacks her. I mean, that's redundant because all vampires are dead, says Bonnie, but they have the circles under their eyes and the white skin, like you do. Be nice to Katie, whispers Liberty. Mom told us. I am being nice, says Bonnie. A lot of vamp vampires are extremely sexy. That's a documented fact. I told you I didn't want you talking about creepy dead stuff this summer, says Liberty. You were bad enough last night. She turns to me. Bonnie's obsessed with dead things. She's reading books about them all the time, and then she can't sleep. It's annoying when you share a room. Liberty says all this without ever looking me in the eye. I was talking about Katie's hair, says Bonnie. You don't have to tell her she looks dead. It's okay, I tell Bonnie. I don't actually care what you think, so it's perfectly okay. Everyone heads to New Claremont, leaving me and Mummy alone at Windmere to unpack. I ditch my bag and look for the liars. Suddenly, they are on me like puppies. Mirren grabs me and spins me. Johnny grabs Mirren. Gat grabs Johnny. We are all grabbing each other and jumping. Then we are apart again, going into cuddle down. Mirren chatters about how glad she is that Bess and the Littles will live with Granddad this summer. He needs somebody with him now. Plus, Bess and her obsessive cleaning is impossible to be around. Plus, again, and even more important, we liars will have cuddled down to ourselves. Gat says he is going to make hot tea, and hot tea is his new vice. Johnny calls him pretentious. Johnny calls him a pretentious ass face. We follow Gat into the kitchen. He puts water on to boil. It is a whirlwind, all of them taking, all of them talking over each other, arguing happily, exactly like old times. Gat hasn't quite looked at me, though. I can't stop looking at him. He is so beautiful, so Gat. I know the arc of his lower lip, 
the strength in his shoulders, the way he half tucks his shirt into his jeans, the way his shoes are worn down at the heel, the way he touches that scar on his eyebrow without realizing he's doing it. I am so angry and so happy to see him. Probably he has moved on like any well-adjusted person would. Gat hasn't spent the last two years in a shell of headache, pain, and self-pity. He's been going around New York City with girls in ballet flats, taking them to Chinese food and out to see bands. If he's not with Raquel, he's probably got a girl or even three at home. Your hair's new, Johnny says to me. Yeah. You look pretty, though, says Mirren sweetly. She's so tall says Gat, busying himself with boxes of tea, jasmine, and English breakfast, and so on. You didn't used to be that tall, did you, Katie? It's called growing, I say. Don't hold me responsible. Two summers ago, Gat was several inches taller than I. Now we are about even. I'm all for growing, says Gat, his eyes still not on my face. Just don't get taller than me. Is he flirting? He is. Johnny always says, Johnny always lets me be the tallest, Gat goes on. Never makes an issue of it. Like I have a choice, groans Johnny. She's still our Katie, says Mirren loyally. We probably look different to her too. But they don't. They look the same. Gat, in a worn green t-shirt from two summers ago, his ready smile, his way of leaning forward, his dramatic nose. Johnny broad-shouldered and jeans and a pink plaid button-down so old its edges are frayed, nails bitten, hair cropped. Mirren, like a pre-Raphaelite painting that square Sinclair chin, her long, thick hair is piled on top of her head and she's wearing a bikini top and shorts. It is reassuring. I love them so. Will it matter to them that I can't hold on to even a basic, to even basic facts surrounding my accident? I've lost so much of what we did together, Summer 15. I wonder if the aunts have been talking about me. I don't want them to look at me like I'm sick or like my mind isn't working. Tell about college, says Johnny. He is sitting on the kitchen counter. Where are you going? Nowhere yet. The truth I can't avoid. I'm surprised they don't know. They don't know it already. What? Why? I didn't graduate. I missed too much of school after the accident. Oh, barf yells Johnny. That is horrible. You can't do summer school? Not and come here. Besides, I'll do better if I apply with all my coursework done. What are you going to study? asks Gat. Let's talk about something else. But we want to know, says Mirren. We all do. Seriously, I say. Something else. How's your love life, Johnny? Barf again. I raise my eyebrows. When you're as handsome as I am, the course never runs smooth, he quips. I have a boyfriend named Drake Loggerhead, says Mirren. He's going to P Pomona like I am. We have had sexual intercourse quite a number of times, but always with protection. He brings me yellow roses every week and has nice muscles. Johnny spits out his tea. Gat and I laugh. Drake Loggerhead, Johnny asks. Yes, says Mirren. What's so funny? Nothing. Johnny shakes his head. We've been going out five months says Mirren. He's spending the summer down outward bound, so we'll have he'll have even more muscles when I see him next. You've got to be kidding, Gat says. Just a little, says Mirren, but I love him. I squeeze her hand. I am happy she has someone to be in love with. I'm going to ask you about the sexual intercourse later, I warn her. When the boys aren't here, she says, I'll tell you all. 
We leave our teacups and walk down to the tiny beach, take off our shoes and wiggle our toes in the sand. There are tiny, sharp shells. I'm not going to supper at New Claremont, says Marin decisively, and no breakfast either, not this year. Why not? I ask. I can't take it, she says. The aunts, the littles, granddad, he's lost his mind, you know. I nod. It's too much togetherness. I just want to be happy with you guys down here, says Marin. I'm not hanging around in that cold new house. Those people are fine without me. Same, says Johnny. Same, says Gat. I realized they discussed this idea before I arrived. Mirren and Johnny go in the water with snorkels and fins. They kick around looking for lobsters. Probably there are only jellyfish and tiny crabs, but even with those slim pickings, we have snorkeled at the tiny beach always. Gat sits with me on a batik blanket. We watch the others in silence. I don't know how to talk to him. I love him. He's been an ass. I shouldn't love him. I'm stupid for still loving him. I have to forget about it. Maybe he still thinks I am pretty, even with my hair and the hollows beneath my eyes. Maybe. The muscles of his back shift beneath his t-shirt, the curve of his neck, of his neck, the soft arc of his ear, a little brown mole on the side of his neck, the moons of his fingernails. I drink him up after so long apart. Don't look at my troll feet, says Gat suddenly. What? They're hideous. A troll snuck into my room at night, took my normal feet for himself, and left me with this thuggish troll feet. With his thuggish troll feet. Gat tucks his feet under a towel so I can't see them. Now you know the truth. I am relieved we are talking about nothing important. Wear shoes. I'm not wearing shoes on the beach. He wiggles his feet out from beneath the towel. They look fine. I have to act like everything's okay until I can't find that troll. Then I'll kill him to death and get my normal feet back. Have you got weapons? No. Come on. Um, there's a fire poker in Windmere. All right. As soon as we see that troll, we'll kill him to death with your fire poker. If you insist. I lie back on the blanket and put my arms over my eyes. We are silent for a moment. Trolls are nocturnal, I said. Katie, Gat whispers. I turn my face to look in his eyes. Yeah? I thought I might never see you again. What? He is so close we could kiss. I thought I might never see you again after everything that happened and when you weren't here last summer. Why didn't you write me, I want to say. Why didn't you call all this time? He touches my face. I'm so glad you're here, he says. I'm so glad I got the chance. I don't know what is between us. I really don't. He is such an ass. Give me your hand, Gat says. I'm not sure I want to. But then, of course, I do want to. His skin is warm and sandy. We intertwine our fingers and close our eyes against the sun. Just We just lie there holding hands. He rubs my palm with his thumb like he did two summers ago beneath the stars. And I melt. My room at Windermere is wood paneled with cream paint. There's a green patchwork quilt on the bed. The carpet is one of those rag rugs you see in country inns. You were here two summers ago, I tell myself, in this room every night, in this room every morning. Presumably you were reading, playing games on the iPad, choosing clothes. What do you remember? 
nothing. Tasteful botanic prints line the walls of my room, plus some art I made, a watercolor of the maple that used to loom over the Claremont lawn, and two crayon drawings, one of Granny Tipper and her dogs, Prince Philip and Fatima, the other of my father. I drag the wicker laundry basket from the closet, take down all the pictures, and load them into the basket. There's a bookshelf lined with paperbacks, teen books and fantasy I was into reading a few years back. Kid stories I read a hundred times. I pull them down and stack them in the hallway. You're giving away the books? You love books, Mummy says. She's coming out of her room wearing fresh clothes for supper. Lipstick. We can give them to the vineyard libraries, I say, or to Goodwill. Mummy bends over and flips through the paperbacks. We read Charmed Life together. Do you remember? I nod. And this one, too, The Lives of Christopher Chant. That was the year you were eight. You wanted to read everything, but you weren't a good enough reader yet, so I read to you and Gat for hours and hours. What about Johnny and Mirren? They couldn't sit still, says Mummy. Don't you want to keep these? She reaches out and touches my cheek. I pull back. I want the things to find a better home, I tell her. I was hoping you would feel different when we came back to the island, is all. You got rid of all Dad's stuff. You bought a new couch, new dishes, new jewelry. Katie, there's nothing in our whole house that says he ever lived with us except me. Why are you allowed to erase my father and I'm not allowed to... Erase yourself? Mummy says. Other people might use these, I snap, pointing to the stack of books. People who have actual needs. Don't you think of doing good in the world? At that moment, Poppy, Bosch, Grendel, and Grendel hurtle upstairs and clog the hallway where we are standing, snarfing out our hands, flapping their hairy tails at our knees. Mummy and I are silent. Finally, she says, It's all right for you to moon around at the tiny beach or whatever you did this afternoon. It's all right for you to give away your books if you feel that strongly. But I expect you at Claremont for supper in an hour with a smile on your face for Granddad. No arguments, no excuses. You understand me? I nod. A pad is left from several summers ago when I and when Gad and I got obsessed with graph paper. We made drawing after drawing on it by filling in the tiny squares with colored pencils to make pixelated portraits. I find a pen and write down all my memories of summer 15. The s'mores, the swim, the attic, the interruption. Mirren's hand, her chipped gold nail polish, holding a jug of gas for the motorboats. Mummy, her face tight, asking, the black pearls? Johnny's feet running down the stairs from Claremont to the boathouse. Granddad holding on to a tree, his face lit by the glow of a bonfire. And all four of us liars laughing so hard we felt dizzy and sick. I make a separate page for the accident itself. What Mummy's told me and what I guess... I must have gone swimming on the tiny beach alone. I hid my head on a rock. I must have struggled back to shore. Aunt Bess and Mummy gave me tea. I was diagnosed with hypothermia, respiratory problems, and a brain injury that never showed on the scans. I tacked the pages to the wall above my bed. I add sticky notes with questions. Why did I go into the, into the water alone at night? Where were my clothes? Did I really have a head injury from the swim? Or did something else happen? Could someone have hit me earlier? Was I the victim of some crime? And what happened between me and Gat? Did we argue? Did I wrong him? Did he stop loving me and go back to Raquel? 
I resolve that everything I learn in the next four weeks will go above my Windermere bed. I will sleep beneath the notes and study them every morning. Maybe a picture will emerge from the pixels. A witch has been standing there behind me for some time, waiting for a moment of weakness. She holds an ivory statue of a goose. It is intricately carved. I turn and admire it only for a moment before she swings it with shocking force. It connects, crushing a hole in my forehead. I can feel my bone come loose. The witch swings the statue again and it hits above my right ear, smashing my skull. Blow after blow she lands until tiny flakes of bone litter the bed and mingle with chipped bits of her once beautiful goose. I find my pills and turn off the light. Cadence! Mummy calls from the hallway. Supper is on at New Claremont. I can't go. I can't. I won't. Mummy promises coffee to help me stay awake while the drugs are in my system. She says how long it's been since the aunts since the aunts have seen me, how the littles and my cousins too, after all, I have family obligations. I can only feel the break in my skull and the pain winging through my brain. Everything else is a faded backdrop to that. Finally, she leaves without me. Deep in the night, the house rattles, just the thing Taft was scared of over at Cuddledown. All the houses here do it. They're old, and the island is buffeted by winds off the sea. I try to go back to sleep. No. I go downstairs and onto the porch. My head feels okay now. Aunt Carrie is on the walkway, heading away from me in her nightgown and a pair of shirling boots. She looks skinny, with the bones of her chest exposed and her cheekbones hollow. She turns onto the wooden walkway that leads to Redgate. I sit staring at her, breathing the night air and listening to the waves. A few minutes later, she comes up the path from Cuddledown again. Katie, she says, stopping and crossing her arms over her chest. You feeling better? Sorry I missed supper, I say. I had a headache. There will be suppers every night, all summer. Can't you sleep? Oh, you know, Carrie scratches her neck. I can't sleep either without Ed. Isn't that silly? No. I start wondering. It's good exercise. Have you seen Johnny? Not in the middle of the night. He's up when I'm up sometimes. Do you see him? You could look if his light is on. Will has such bad nightmares, Carrie says. He wakes up screaming and then I can't go back to sleep. I shiver in my sweatshirt. Do you want a flashlight? I ask. There's one inside the door. Oh, no, I like the dark. She trudges once again up the hill. Mummy is in the new Claremont kitchen with Granddad. I see them through the glass sliding doors. You're up early, she says when I come in. Feeling better? Granddad is wearing a plaid bathrobe. Mummy is in a sundress decorated with small pink lobsters. She is making espresso. Do you want scones? The cook made bacon, too. They're both in the warming drawer. She walks across the kitchen and lets the dogs into the house. Bosh, Grendel, and Poppy wag their tails and drool. Mommy bends and wipes their paws with a wet cloth, then absentmindedly swipes the floor where their muddy paw prints were. They sit stupidly, sweetly. Where's Fatima? I ask. Where's Prince Philip? They're gone, says Mommy. What? Be nice to her, says Granddad. He turns to me. They passed on a little while back. Both of them? Granddad nods. I'm sorry. I sit next to him at the table. Did they suffer? Not for long. 
Mummy brings a plate of raspberry scones and one of bacon to the table. I take a scone and spread butter and honey on it. She used to be a little blonde girl, a Sinclair through and through. Granddad complains to Mummy. We talked about my hair when you came to visit, I remind him. I don't expect you to like it. Grandfathers never like hair dye. You're the parent. You should make Mirren change her hair back to how it was, Granddad says to my mother. What happened to the little blonde girls who used to run around this place? Mummy sighs. We grew up, Dad, she says. We grew up. And that'll do it for this reading of E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Until next time.